Welcome once again, friends, to another podcast from the heart of Spurgeon. This week, our featured sermon is on grieving the Holy Spirit, and it was preached on October the 9th, 1859, at the music hall, the Royal Surrey Gardens. Now, this week, we're reading from 276 through to 282 in the sequence of sermons, getting really close to the end now of the new Park Street Pulpit, Volume 5, and we are featuring, as we've said, Sermon 278. Next week, it's 283 to 289, and our featured sermon will be 289. That's on the uh, the minister's farewell, and uh, it's difficult at the moment to choose which of these sermons to feature If you can read more than one or two, I would encourage you to do so. There are some really wonderful sermons in this current sequence. Uh, I would recommend, uh, among some of the others, uh, 284, God's Antidote for Many Ills. Uh, The one on the Saviour's Many Crowns is wonderful, uh, but we can only choose one a week, really, uh, even at our uh, most self-indulgent, and I hope that these will be uh, then a blessing to you in various ways. So let's dive into today's sermon, Grieving the Holy Spirit, from Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 30. Grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby you are sealed unto the day of redemption. Spurgeon is very tender in this sermon, pastorally wise in what he says and how he says it. That's evident from the very first line when he says, there's something very touching in this admonition. Grieve not the Holy Spirit of God. It doesn't say, do not make him angry, but a more delicate and tender term is used. Grieve him not. And he draws an analogy from the character of men, some of whom are so hard a character that to make another angry doesn't give them much pain. And indeed, there are many of us who are scarcely to be moved by the information that another is angry with us. But, Where is the heart so hard that it is not moved when we know that we have caused others grief? For grief is a sweet combination of anger and of love. Anger, he says, begets anger. Grief begets pity. Pity is next akin or near neighbour, we might say, to love. And we love those whom we have caused to grieve. So the emphasis here is on a relationship of love between the Holy Spirit and the child of God in particular. Now Spurgeon's very careful. He points out that the Holy Spirit of God knows no passion or suffering. Nevertheless, his emotion is here described in human language as being that of grief. I'm not going to dive into some of the theology proper, that is the the doctrine of God that lies behind that statement. I simply want to note that while he faces the full weight of the biblical text, Spurgeon also knows the character and the nature of his God. But we're zeroing in on the pastoral impact of what Spurgeon has to say. And again, it's clear from his wise division of the material that he wants to make sure that this emphasis on the love that the Spirit has for us and therefore the love that we ought to have for the Spirit which helps to understand then the nature of the grief that we bring to the Spirit when we sin against him. And so he's going to speak, first of all, upon the love of the Spirit, then the seal of the Spirit, and then thirdly, the grieving of the Spirit. 
and I'll note at this point, I might mention it again later on, but uh, you, you'll you see as we go through this, if you're reading it, if you, as it were, get a big picture of the sermon, Spurgeon's approach to uh, preaching, uh, especially his interaction with his notes. Typically, he's got uh, just a page, sometimes a couple of pages of headings, outlines, uh, points of note in front of him. That means that when he's preaching, he can be quite adaptable. And you'll see that when he gets to the second point here. He typically is going to preach in the uh, the same kind of window of time. Uh, around 40 to 45 minutes seems to be about his average. Some sermons are notably longer, others notably shorter. Sometimes that's because of the material that seems to bubble up. Others, uh, it may be because of his sickness or his weakness. But it means that when he has emphasized a particular point, he's well able to just draw back a little bit, be a bit more pointed, a little more brief when he deals with uh, then one of his headings. And that's what he does here when he comes to the seal of the spirit. He's quite short, sweet, straightforward at that point. He tends to develop the first and the third points in this sermon. And so he begins with the love of the spirit which is intended to press forward to his great mark or target, stirring us not to grieve the Spirit. Because when we're persuaded that someone loves us, it's a good reason not to grieve them. He reminds us again, and here is his theology proper, his doctrine of God, all that can be said of the love of the Father, of the love of the Son, may be said of the love of the Spirit. For the third person of the Godhead is as much God is truly God, is God in himself, as the Father and the Son. So the Spirit's love is eternal, infinite, sovereign, everlasting, a love which cannot be dissolved or decreased, which cannot be removed from those who are the objects of it. But Spurgeon, as he as he often does, doesn't want to deal in abstract things. He shows us, he reminds us, he describes how the Spirit has loved us. It's one thing for him to say the Spirit loves God's people, the Spirit loves those in whom he's taken up residence. But how has he done this? And he gives us something of a chronological survey. The Spirit of God stirred up the conscience and solemnly corrected us on account of our youthful sins, and frequently since then he has wooed us or drawn us. So our first experience of the Spirit's operations is when he worked a conviction of sin in our hearts. He made us understand our need of a Saviour. He corrected us on account of our youthful sins, and he drew us to Christ, and he keeps drawing us to Christ. So that again and again, especially at the beginning of our experience, we understand how the Spirit has loved us in dealing with us, not as we deserve, but coming to us, showing us our need of a Saviour, and then showing us the Saviour that we need. And then he emphasises that it was the Spirit who guided us to Jesus, that having enlivened us, he took us aside and showed us Jesus on the tree. And there's this beautiful personification of the Spirit here. It's clear that he is not in Spurgeon's mind at all a force or an influence. He is truly a person. And Spurgeon has this image, as it were, of the, the Spirit taking you by the hand and showing you the Lord Christ. 
opening your blind eye, your deaf ear, to see a dying saviour and hear the voice of pardoning love. He has revealed Christ in his saving glory to you. He has made him known. He is your teacher in the school of grace. And again and again, he does this for us. He leads us into all truth. He takes the things of Christ. He applies them to us. It is a marvel, says Spurgeon, that Jesus should lie in a manger. Is it not an equal marvel that the Holy Spirit should become an usher in the sacred school to teach fools and make them wise, uh, a sort of a, a helper, a teaching assistant, we might almost say, uh, to instruct in the glories of the Saviour and his salvation. But again, consider how much we owe to the Spirit's consolation. He has been a blessed comforter when every other comfort has failed, when the promise itself has seemed empty, when the ministry was void of power, then the Holy Spirit has proved a rich comfort to the souls of God's people and filled our hearts with peace and joy in believing. And again, Spurgeon uses the first person here. He has blessed me. He has comforted me. He has been a comfort to my soul. He has filled my poor heart. Spurgeon's not saying this as a, as a general experience. It is something the Spirit does and does for individual Christians. And he's saying, what I have experienced, he has done for others also. Then again, consider how much he helps our infirmities. What a demonstration of divine love is there when we cannot pray, when we cannot serve, when we are dull and lifeless, when we don't know what to say or what to do, when uh, even our desires are not what they ought to be and we, we're simply left desiring that we might desire the right things. All the desire you have, he says, is a desire that you may be able to desire. But that's when the Spirit draws near, when you're crying out, groaning, even wordlessly, to help your infirmities is a mighty instance of love. And then again, a further token of the Spirit's love, his indwelling in the saints, this glorious doctrine that the Holy Spirit takes up residence in the soul of each one of God's people. That little narrow heart of man, the Holy Spirit has made his palace. It may be a cottage, a very hovel, and all unholy and unclean, yet the Spirit condescends to make the heart of his people his continual abode. You talk of the love and the grace and the tenderness and the faithfulness of Christ, says Spurgeon. Why don't you say the same of the Spirit? Was ever love like his that he should visit us? Was ever mercy like his that he should bear with our ill manners, though constantly repeated by us? Was ever faithfulness like his that multitudes of sins cannot drive him away? Ever power like his that overcomes all our iniquities and yet leads us safely on, though hosts of foes within and without rob us of our Christian life? Spurgeon knows the third person of the Godhead. Spurgeon knows the Father, he knows the Son, and he knows the Holy Spirit. And there's uh, a very rich and a very fruitful conception here of his loving ministry toward us. And then Spurgeon moves on, as we've said, to this second and fairly brief heading. Another reason why we should not grieve the Spirit is because by the Holy Spirit we are sealed, by whom we are sealed until the day of redemption. Spurgeon says, I'm going to be brief. The Spirit himself is expressed as the seal, even as he himself is directly said to be the pledge of our inheritance. 
that that first one may be uh, questionable. Second one, certainly the spirit is the down payment, the pledge, the guarantee of our inheritance. But Spurgeon is going to dive in straight away on the ceiling having a threefold meaning. It's a ceiling of attestation or confirmation, a ceiling of appropriation, and a ceiling of preservation. And again, as you work through these, remember Spurgeon's aim in speaking like this is that we might understand then why it is such a grievous thing to grieve the Holy Spirit. So first of all, the Holy Spirit is a ceiling of attestation. The Spirit himself bears witness with my spirit that I am born of God. I have the writings, the title deeds of the inheritance that is to come. It is possible for a man to know infallibly that he is secure of heaven. That is, by the inward witness and testimony of the Holy Ghost, to know that you have been begotten again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Real, genuine, true faith. It is uh, able to be known. You don't just have to say, I hope that I'm going to heaven. You may know that you are going to heaven, and you may know it this way, by being able with the eye of faith to see the seal, the broad stamp of the Holy Spirit set upon your own character and experience. You're basically going back and saying, this is what the Holy Spirit is doing and has done in me. And by his presence and his work in my life, it is clear to me that I am on my way to the glory which lies ahead. And then the seal of appropriation. When men put their mark upon an article, it's to show that it is their own. And so the Holy Spirit is a seal of appropriation. It's a, a designation of belonging. There's a, a mark on a shepherd's sheep. There's a, a, a mark on a king's property. So the Holy Spirit puts the broad arrow of God upon the hearts of all his people. So we know that we are God's reserved inheritance. It's a, a sign of belonging. And then preservation. Men seal up that which they wish to have preserved. And again, Spurgeon's riffing off the seal language here a little bit, but he's trying to make the point that we are set apart to God and identified as belonging to God, uh, that the the, the Spirit intends, having already come to us, to complete the work that he has begun in us. He's that guarantee. What happens at the day of resurrection is not an altogether different thing, but the completion of that which has already begun in us by our having the Holy Spirit. And so you've got the love of the Spirit. You've got the sealing of the Spirit or the Spirit as a seal. And Spurgeon wants us then to have this in our minds, to think how the Spirit has blessed us, how he's favoured us, how he's shown kindness to us, and what he does in his operations toward us, so that we may feel the weight of the grieving of the Spirit. How may we do it? What's the sad result of grieving him? And if we have grieved him, how can we bring him back again? So then this first question, how can we grieve the Spirit? In what ways do we do these things? And Spurgeon is speaking, first of all, of those who love the Lord Jesus Christ. You may grieve him by impure thoughts. You may grieve him yet more by outward acts of sin. You may do it by neglect of the means of grace. You can do it by unbelief. 
These are the things that Spurgeon is uh, most concerned about as he speaks at this point. Now, these aren't the only things, but he's running through the kinds of things that grieve the Holy Spirit. And remember that these are then grievances against the Spirit. These are things which uh, countermand, which resist or neglect or uh, despise those very operations of the Spirit in our hearts which he is pleased to perform as an expression of his love and as the carrying out of his ministry. So if he is the Spirit of holiness who is bringing us to Christ, who is cleansing us, who is taking up residence in our hearts, those impure thoughts will distress him. The indulgence in outward acts of sin may grieve him. If he has given us means whereby we may know him and know his ministry and know the Christ whom he brings to bear upon us, then to neglect those things is a grievance to him. If he speaks to us in the word and we doubt the power or the affection of the blessed Lord, then the Spirit is grieved because we are not hearing his witness. The, the, the distress that Spurgeon feels at this prospect is significant. You're sitting down to read a novel, says Spurgeon, and your Bible has not been touched. You've got no time for prayer. You're active about worldly things. You've got low, many hours to prepare, all the time in the world for relaxation and amusement. But you love worldly things better than you love God and the things which belong to God. So it's too easy, says Spurgeon, for us carelessly and thoughtlessly to grieve the Holy Spirit. And there's a, there's a patience in him, there's a, a readiness to bear with us. And yet if we go on in this course of neglect and carelessness, the Holy Spirit being grieved will back away. And that's where Spurgeon comes to the effect of the Spirit's grief. Yes, he may be grieved again and again and still he bears with us, but then he will withdraw. He will suspend his operations. Now, he will not take away our life. Spurgeon is adamant here that this is not to lose our salvation. It is to lose the benefits of the Spirit's actual presence and operations in our experience. When the Spirit of God goes away from the soul and suspends all his operations, what a miserable state we are in. So, on the one hand, we should not over-exaggerate here and say that this is to lose one's salvation, but on the other side, we must not say, well, as long as I've got life, I've got hope, and who cares? So I can cope, I, I can get on with this. It doesn't really matter. No, to lose the present operations, the deep and sweet effects of the Spirit in our souls is a desperate state to be in. It, it's the, the loss of light and peace and joy and there's no none of that immediate and experiential or experimental sense of God's smile upon us. His light goes, his joy goes, his comfort goes, his power goes, our graces flag. They're like the flower called the hydrangea. Plenty of water and it blooms, but when the moisture fails, the leaves drop down at once. And so when the spirit goes away, faith shuts up its flowers, no perfume is exhaled. And Spurgeon is very thoughtful here. He says, now, there are individual experiences, but there are also corporate experiences of grieving the Holy Spirit. And he reminds us here 
that the churches of the present day are very much in the position of those who have grieved the Spirit of God. God has little wrought in the midst of his churches. And I think that at least from my perspective, we would have to say the same thing. Four or five years ago, says Spurgeon, throughout England, an almost universal torpor or sleepiness had fallen upon the visible body of Christ. Action was spasmodic, but there was no real vitality. Few sinners were brought to Christ. Places of worship had become empty. Our prayer meetings were dwindling away to nothing. Our church meetings were mere matters of farce. Now, Spurgeon was saying that in his day. What might he say of ours? We don't even need to make as it were, a comparison. We just need to look around us at our own congregations and those which we know. Can we truly say that we are in a state of high spiritual vitality? If so, we ought to mourn. If so, we ought to be grieving. We go up to our accustomed place and the minister prays and the people either sleep with their eyes or with their hearts. They go out and there is never a soul saved. The pool of baptism is seldom stirred, but the saddest part of all is this. The churches are willing to have it so. They are not earnest to get a revival of religion. Now, Spurgeon isn't going to put his finger, he says, on what he thinks the sin is, but something has been done which has driven the Spirit of God from us. Now, he also acknowledges that over those last five years, the Spirit of God has revived the church of Jesus Christ without cries or shoutings, without fallings down or swooning, Steadily, God has added to the Metropolitan Tabernacle, or as it was then, the New Park Street Church, the uh, numbers upon numbers, so that your minister's heart is ready to break with very joy when he thinks how manifestly the Spirit of God is with us. But he says, is that enough? Is it enough for us to be blessed? Don't we want others to be blessed? Also, others to know the, the ministry of the Spirit in this way. And so we need to cry aloud and to purge the church of everything that is contrary to God's word and to sound doctrine. There needs to be repentance and there needs to be uh, a restoration, a reparation, a, a, a reformation that we cannot go on and just say, oh, we wish it were better, that we need to repent, we need to do our first works. And, says Spurgeon, as he finishes, don't forget that there are some of you who have also lost the visible presence of Christ with you, and the Spirit of God has gone. So you too, individually, you search out for the sin that has grieved the Spirit, you give it up, you slay that sin upon the spot, you repent with tears and sighs, you continue in prayer, and you never rest satisfied until the Holy Ghost comes back to you. Frequent. Be in the habit of getting under an earnest ministry. Get much with earnest saints, but above all, be much in prayer to God and let your daily cry be, Return, return, O Holy Spirit, return and dwell in my soul. And I think we then need to ask as we come to the end of this, as we think about the, uh, the truth which we have considered, the great love of the Spirit toward us, the sealing of the Spirit in the souls of the saints, and the ease then with which we can grieve him. Perhaps our first question is, do I even care? Am I even bothered? Does this trouble me at all? Can I live at a poor dying rate and it not have any impact, effect 
upon me, that I'm unconcerned, or as the time come perhaps to begin, if we cannot begin anywhere else, with desiring that we may desire what we ought to desire, with asking the Spirit, if you will do nothing else, to, as it were, go back to the very first things, to make us conscious of our need of him, to make us aware of our dependence upon him, to ask him to show us Christ again in all his glory, in all his beauty, and then to, to work in our hearts increasingly to will and to do for God's good pleasure, that we might then, not only in repenting of our sins, but in striving after godliness and putting away all that is unrighteous and unclean, know again the sweet operations of the Spirit in our midst. And if you do not know him at all, if you have never known the operations of the Spirit, then call upon him now. Have have dealings with God. Ask him to show you Christ. Ask him to, if he's given you any desire at all, to now come and finish what he has begun, that the Lord, by his mercy, might not only save those who are lost, but stir up those whom he has been pleased to find, and grant that we may so live, as never again to grieve the Holy Spirit of God. Thank you for listening, and I trust that these things will leave us with an appetite for prayer, and that as we go on, and next week, Sermons 283 to 289, and Sermon 289 as our featured sermon, that the the study of these things will bring indeed spiritual light and heat to our needy souls. Thank you. My name is Jeremy Walker, and this is a Media Gratii production. I hope you've enjoyed From the Heart of Spurgeon. For more information, and to read along with us week by week, follow us on Twitter at Reading Spurgeon. That's Twitter at Reading Spurgeon.